Hello, this is Gary Hutchins with the Sunny Slope Church of Christ in Omaha, Nebraska. This is Sunday, our Sunday morning Bible class. Welcome. As we open up God's Word and study a little bit further, dig a little bit deeper, learn a little bit more, and in that process, as we're studying God's Word, we grow stronger in our faith. Because faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. I cannot emphasize too much how important it is for us to be in God's word. The apostle Paul instructed, be diligent to present yourself approved before God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or correctly handling, that is understanding and applying properly, correctly, the word of truth. And of course, that word of truth is God's word. Jesus, and that's 2 Timothy 2 in verse 15. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The Apostle Peter wrote that we, that we come to salvation, we're born again through our learning, understanding, and obeying correctly God's Word, the truth of God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Now, it's just so important that we be in God's Word, and what richer book could we possibly find to immerse ourselves in than the very Word of God? So much is there. So much is there. Well, we want to encourage you to share these studies with everybody that you can. You can do that through Facebook friends, text messages, and other technological means. And perhaps there are some other ways that you can share them with other people. And tell those folks to go to our website at churchofchrist.com, churchofchrist.com. Click on, the, uh, click on the podcast button and sign up for our podcasting. It's free. It always will be free. We're not after people's wallets. We want to help people get to heaven. And when they sign up for our podcasting, they will automatically receive to their computer or smartphone or whatever device they choose our Sunday morning Bible class, our Wednesday night Bible class, all of our sermons, and they will receive a Monday through Friday daily radio program called Search the Scriptures. And they will receive a daily, every day, seven days a week, short Bible study, only about 13, 14 minutes usually, but it keeps us in God's Word and helps keep us refreshed as we as we think about what we're learning that day. Now, we call that today's Bible class. Every day, seven days a week. All of that will automatically go to their smart device, and it will always be free. Now, we encourage you, if you're in the Omaha area, come and check us out in person. Get to know us. Let us get to know you. Study God's Word with us. Worship God with us. Grow spiritually with us at the Sunny Slope Church of Christ. Our church building is located at 3606 North 108th Street, 3606 North 108th Street, and Bible classes begin on Sunday morning at 9.30, followed by worship at 10.30. Sunday evenings, another period of worship and Bible study, each Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. Wednesday evenings, midweek Bible classes, every Wednesday evening at 6.30. You're always welcome. We hope to meet you soon. We're going to begin a new study. Last time we finished up our study in the book of Ruth, and certainly Ruth could be called a love story. And it probably has been taught that way, oh, countless times over the generations. I want us to look at another short book in the Old Testament scriptures, and that is the book of Esther. Now, I wrote a series of studies from the book of Esther 
that I entitled that I entitled by way of question for such a time as this? Again, question mark at the end of that. For such a time as this? Now, we'll see how that particular question begins to make sense as we go through these short 10 chapters. That's, it's a short book from the Old Testament. But I remember as I was partway through this, we had a visitor one, son, one Wednesday evening as I was teaching in a, in a Wednesday evening Bible class, and he was a gospel minister at that time. Um, and he asked me, and he seemed surprised and <laughs> really rather challenging, I think I could say, when he said, why are you teaching the book of Esther? And his point being, in a Wednesday night Bible class, why are you spending this time teaching the book of Esther? And I offered to give him, you know, my study notes, and he did not want those. Um, but what I really should have said was, and I, I, and, and I told him the title, I believe, but I should have gone a little bit further and said, asked him, do you believe in God's divine providence? And he naturally would have said yes. He was a gospel preacher, a young fella, just kind of out of school. But he would have understood. He would, oh, you, well, yes, sure. And then what I should have said is, that's the book of Esther. The book of Esther is all about God's divine providence. And if you study through it, you'll see that. Well, that's what I want to help you see. God's divine providence. Now, what am I talking about when I say God's divine providence? There are a whole lot of things that happen in life that a lot of people look at or they hear about and they say, oh, that's a miracle. That, that, that was only by a miracle that such and such happened. Well, what is a miracle, really? Somebody says, well, so-and-so got the flu. Boy, they were deathly ill. I mean, they were so sick, they didn't know what time of day it was. They didn't know if they were coming or going. They were so sick, and now they're, they're well. And that was, that was nothing but a miracle. Really? Were they taking medication? Well, you, well, yeah, yeah, they were taking medication. Then was it really a miracle? Were they in the hospital? Yeah, they were in the hospital. They were in the hospital for several days before they got well. So they were receiving medical treatment. Well, yeah, yeah. Was that really a miracle? Or something happened that came into the life of an individual and it changed their life. And somebody, a loved one, a friend, somebody observing from, you know, on the outside, well, that was nothing but a miracle that that happened. Really? What is a miracle? We ascribe miracles to all kinds of, now listen to what I'm saying, natural events. A miracle is something that happens that violates the laws of nature. What do I mean? Jesus healed or brought back to life. He resurrected by God's power a number of individuals while he was upon this earth who had died physically. I mean, there's no question about it. They were dead. And he brought them, he resurrected them, brought them back to life. That, that was a violation of the natural laws, the laws of nature. When you're dead physically, you're dead. 
You don't come back to life, especially after three or four days, as in the case of Lazarus. Jesus brought those folks back to life. That's a miracle. God, through the apostle Peter, brought Dorcas back to life. That's a miracle. Remember the prophet brought back to life, God through that prophet brought back to life the, the dead son of the Shunammite woman. That's a miracle. When Jesus fed those 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, that's a miracle. There was no way that they could have passed out even a tiny little portion of that little bit of food that they had available to them, physical food, to all of those 5,000 people there and fed them to their fill, much less just, just gave them a little bit to maybe put, put in the tip of their tongue. There wasn't enough to go around, not by any stretch of the imagination. But Jesus blessed that little bit of food and it extended to all of those 5,000. They had as much as they wanted. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Now, we could go on and cite a whole bunch of other miracles that are documented in the, in the scriptures of God's word, the Bible. But there's another way that God works in the lives of individuals. And a lot of times we don't recognize it. And a whole lot of the time we don't recognize it until sometime later, maybe years later. And the way that God does that is by providence, divine providence. Now, I've tried to explain divine providence many times. I, I, maybe the, the easiest way for us to understand it, stand it is God works behind the scenes in our lives. He's working there in ways we don't even recognize, we don't even see, we don't even realize until sometime later. And then we start to, wow, well, yeah, that happened as a result of this, that happened as a result of this, and that happened as a result of this. And then we start putting the pieces together and seeing, seeing how the chain has been formed to get to the point where now we recognize the blessing. We recognize the open door. But we did not see all of those pieces falling into place that God was engineering behind the scenes in our lives without our even realizing it. That's divine providence. How God can open doors for us without our even seeing it to begin with. And so oftentimes, we may see the open door and we just don't walk through it. We reject it, not realizing that God has opened that door for us. When I first moved to Omaha, we came to an area where, well, I mean, we had no family here. The Sunny Slope congregation had invited me to come and, and preach for them. And so my wife and I, we flew into Omaha and we started looking around for a home or maybe just an apartment we could rent. But we really preferred a home because we'd been living in our own home for many years back in Louisiana where I was preaching at that time. And so we were looking and looking and looking, 
and we were finding that real estate property in this area was a whole lot more expensive than it had been where we lived in Louisiana, South Louisiana. We'd lived in our home there for many years. And so we just were thinking, wow, it's, this is difficult here. How, how, how much, how, what kind of a home can we afford? And then one of the older men in the congregation was about to move away. His, house, his wife had died, and he was about to move away and marry another woman whom he had known for many years, and they had fallen in love. And so we talked to him about his home, and he offered it to us at a price we could afford, and it was an incredible home, an incredible home. And the price he was offering it to us for, offering it to us for, was we could afford that price, and it was worth a lot more than that. And so after we talked to him, after we looked at his home, a nice neighborhood, spacious home, the comforts that, (laughs) in fact, perhaps more comforts than we would have expected, I asked my wife, what do you think? And she said, "Uh, does God have to hit us over the head with a (laughs) two-by-four? So... I went back and and talked to that brother and basically told him, we'd like to accept your offer. We'd like to buy your home. Now, God working behind the scenes made that home available to us. I think we can understand that by divine providence. Setting things into motion that may have been going into motion for quite some time, that man getting ready to move and remarry, another woman to be his wife, and us coming at the right time to buy his home and move in virtually immediately. And all kinds of things like that happen in our lives where we don't recognize all of the pieces of the puzzle that are being laid out and gradually being put into place until all of a sudden we see the full puzzle picture. It's all complete. And then we say, wow, well, yeah, I see how that all happened. All these different things that happened led up to this point. And there's how we can recognize God's divine providence. God's divine providence. The book of Esther is an illustration, a vivid illustration of God's divine providence and how he worked through that one young lady to save the people of Israel, her people. I'm going to read through the first chapter fairly quickly. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, okay, who was Ahasuerus? You might remember him if you've read ancient history, You might remember him better as Xerxes, King Xerxes. And so King Xerxes, he was was the, uh, the king of Persia. 
And so he was uh, the king of a nation that had actually, uh, they had not conquered Israel, including North Israel and Judah, but they had conquered the conqueror of Israel. And that would have been Babylonia. They conquered Babylonia. And as Babylonia had conquered Judah to the south or south Israel and had taken the survivors into captivity, well, now Persia was the empire that oversaw those captives. The Israelites had been among those captives, but just one nation among the captives that were now under the dominion of, of, of Persia. Now, when we come to this particular point, though, we, we, we don't have them as being necessarily slaves, but they have been in captivity for a number of generations, and so now you have children who have grown up within that captivity. They have known no other nation or land in which they to live except that land, so they had basically acclimated to where they were. And even if you might say, well, they were, you know, kind of at least a semi-free people, but that's where they lived. That's, that's where their roots were by now. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes of Persia, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So again, it wasn't just Israel that was among those who had been taken captive over generations and now were under the domain of, of, the, of the empire of Persia, but it was a number of different lands, number of different peoples. Verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, and powers of Persia and Media the, the, the nobles of the provinces of the province uh, of the princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days 180 days in all and when those when these days were completed the king made a feast lasting 7 days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace and what are we talking about here? Well, he made a feast. Basically, they had a huge party, and that party lasted party of, uh, you know, a celebration, I guess you could say, for the, the power of the king and the power of the empire and the majesty and the splendor and the riches of the empire. Yeah, that, was a, that was a party that lasted 180 days. What are we talking about? Six months, basically. And then at the end of that, there was another kind of specialized party that lasted seven days. In verse 6, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and, pur and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver and on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. I mean, we're talking about splendor here. <laughs> we're talking about, you know, a setting that, that is just, from a human and physical and worldly perspective, glorious. 
Verse 7, they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. And so we can understand there was undoubtedly a whole lot of intoxication that went along during these six months plus of partying in celebration of of the majesty of the king and the empire and so on. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Now, don't you think a whole lot of a whole lot of the men gathered for and and remember these were were basically officials within the kingdom under the rule of the king? And uh, don't you think a whole lot of them took part <laughs> their pleasures in imbibing in all of that alcoholic beverage was uh, great. (laughs) They took uh, continuous pleasure in them. Well, verse 8, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. And I imagine each, I imagine a whole lot of those men had a whole lot of that kind of pleasure that they took part in. Now, verse 9, and things start to take a turn here for the king and for the nation of, 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 um, uh, of Persia, and also ultimately for the people of Israel who are technically still captives within the nation of Persia. So king Vasht- queen, queen Vashti, the queen of King Ahasuerus, also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so the king made a feast, big party, lasted a long time, six months basically, and then tacked on another seven-day party after that for the men. Now his queen, Queen Vashti, she made a party for the women. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, uh, probably say he was intoxicated. He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Karkas, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus. He instructed them, ordered them to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. And so think about it from this perspective. You might say, well, well, wouldn't that be a good thing? He's honoring the queen. You're talking about a king who is probably intoxicated, and he's going to send for his supposedly his beloved wife, whom he would respect and honor, Now, again, the culture of that day and that part of the world was a whole lot different than what we're used to in our country today. But he sends for her to come in and basically show her off for her physical beauty. He's probably already intoxicated. The hall or wherever it is he's going to have her walk into and show herself off is going to be filled with men a whole lot of whom were probably also intoxicated to one degree or another. Well, watch the response of the queen. So verse 12 says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, 
brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Now, perhaps, you know, I mean, we're left to speculate a little bit as to why Queen Vashti refused to come and obey the order of the king, her husband, to kind of parade herself before all of these men, many of whom were probably drunk, including her husband himself, himself, why she refused to do that, but maybe, at least to a large degree, out of (laughs) self-respect for herself? No, I'm not going to come and show myself off before all of that drunken crowd. Now, we're left to speculate. I'm just suggesting that 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 might be the main reason she refused to come and do that. But the king, he was furious that she disobeyed him. So verse 13 says, Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miriz, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. So these were, these were government officials within the nation of Persia, or the Medo-Persian Empire, as it was also known. Verse 15, he asks them, What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mamukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. Well, so here is this, well, he's this counselor, we can say, in this particular occasion, because King Ahasuerus is asking these, these government officials, what, what, should we be do, what, what should we do? What should be done to, to my queen, my, my wife, for disobeying the king? And they say, well, at least Mimukin speaks up, and he says, she's not only only disrespected you, my king, but she's disrespected all of the people of the empire. Because just think, when this gets out, word of her disobeying you, when that gets out, think what an effect it's going to have on a whole lot of the wives within the kingdom, within the empire. They're going to start telling their husbands no and show disrespect for their husbands. Well, (laughs) fanciful reasoning, perhaps, on the part of Mimukin, giving counsel to the king, and I think we can say unwise counsel, but the king listens. And so when all the women of the kingdom of the empire find out about this, they're going to despise their husbands, and they'll start telling them no. Verse 18, this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen, 
Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. Oh, he's really blowing things out of proportion here. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Well, we might look at this as male disrespect for females in that particular culture of that day, in that part of the world. And so Mabukin is, is counseling the king and says, uh, dethrone her, take her crown away, give it to another who is better than she. And why? Because she simply refused to parade herself before all of those onlooking men. And imagine what some of the cat calls might have been as she would walk before them. And again, remember that they had been partying for over six months by this time. Well, when the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all the empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. You see a distorted view of marriage, the marriage relationship that is being described here by this one counselor to the king, and that's Mimukin. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did not. Uh, the king did according to the word of Mimukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, because again, you're talking about a, a bunch of different nations that have been brought under captivity, technically, of the Medo-Roman Empire, uh, Medo-Persian Empire. And so in their own language, in other words, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Now, does God, did God design the marriage relationship for the husband to be the head of the wife and for the wife to respect her husband, but also the husband to respect his wife? Yes. You can go all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. And you can read in New Testament Christianity 1 Corinthians, you know, in Romans chapter 7, in both of those I believe you'll find, where God through his word instructs that the husbands are to be the head of the wife, the head of the house. But they're to be the leaders, but not in the overbearing way that is being described here, but in a loving way, in, in a way that, that, that respects the difference between the male and the female, the husband and the wife, protecting, loving, nurture, nurturing, cherishing. And you can read about that marriage relationship in the second half of Ephesians chapter 5. It goes into detail. It even goes to the point where it says, you know, husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for her. And so that's the degree to which husbands are to love their wives, even putting their life on the line, if necessary, to protect them, to take care of them. Well, 
But we're talking about a culture and a nation, the Medo-Persian Empire, that is not, by and large, a godly nation in that particular day. Yeah. So we're going to pick up with chapter 2, and we're going to start to see how God's divine providence unfolds and ultimately to the point of protecting the Jewish people, the Israelite people, who were under technically the captivity of the Medo-Persian Empire. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn the lessons you want us to learn from your word and help us to make the proper applications to our lives. Help Help us to recognize sin when it is brought out in your word and to also recognize righteousness, your will for our lives. And help us, Father, to recognize that you want what is best for us and that your wisdom is far wiser than we could ever have on our own and that your knowledge we will never attain in our own mindset. We love you, Father. Thank you for watching over us and taking care of us and guiding us in your will through your word. Help us to cherish that blessing, Father. Now, please, we pray. Gracious Father, please forgive us and hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.